Let's talk about that report that's sending shockwaves through the uh, on t- the Canadian long-term care system. That report from the Canadian military that were sent in to long-term care homes in Ontario and Quebec, they come back with an absolutely shocking report detailing what they saw in some of these care homes in Ontario. Infestations of cockroaches, residents left to wallow in soiled diapers. You got patients who tested positive for COVID-19 wandering around these care homes, potentially spreading the virus, the force feeding of the elderly. It just goes on and on. Just unbelievable. Have a listen to this. Here is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reacting to that report. On reading the deeply disturbing report, I had obviously a range of emotions of uh, anger, of sadness, of, of frustration, um, of grief. Um, it is extremely troubling, uh, and uh, as I've said from the very beginning of this, uh, we need to do a better job of supporting our seniors in long-term care uh, right across the country through this pandemic and beyond. All right, what will happen with these care homes now, not only in Ontario but across the country? Let's take, uh, speak to Adrian Dix about that now, BC's Minister of Health. Very pleased you could make the time for us once again today. Minister, thank you. Hey, good morning, Mike. Okay, lots of people talking about these care homes, Minister, in the aftermath of this shocking report. What are your thoughts? Have you had a chance to look at that report or be briefed on it yourself, and do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, I've looked at it a little bit. It should be said that, obviously, COVID-19 has had a deep effect in Ontario and Quebec, and when COVID-19 comes to a care home, it's very difficult wherever it is, and it's been very difficult here in BC as well. They've had four to 5,000 deaths in long-term care, and assisted living in Ontario and Quebec, which seems uh, unbelievable and difficult, and the consequences are profound, and it's it exposes, of course, um, weaknesses in the system. There's no question about that. The approach we've taken in BC, I think, um, is unique to BC, and it's been very much a Team BC approach, so we have worked with the providers, be they private providers who provide public services or the public system medical health officers. So we've done some things in BC uh, earlier and things that haven't been done in other places, and we've done it not by fighting with one another or engaging in previous political fights, but having unions and uh, and workers and health systems and the private providers who are involved in the system and have been for a long time as well, working together, and I think that's the right approach uh, to a pandemic. It's what people would expect, and still, Mike, 92 people have passed away in long-term care homes in B.C., 92, yes. too many, of course. And so, but that's, that's just the very much the nature of COVID-19. We knew this from the beginning. We knew from Hubei province in China, its effect on, on seniors, people over 80 with, and especially those with comorbidity was enormous. And so the very day we announced the first case, you'll remember it was an emotional press conference. I know I was emotional. I know Dr. Henry was as well. When we announced the first case at, uh, at Lynn Valley Care Home, yeah. we knew the challenges in the care sector. So that was a very, very hard day for everybody, but especially for the families and the workers and people okay. living in that whole care home. Okay, I heard the Premier say yesterday that the conditions in care homes in British Columbia are not as bad as what's reflected in this hor- horrifying report out of Ontario, but it's not like we, the, the care homes in our province have been without, without problems themselves. We have seen health authorities actually move in and take over some of these care homes after complaints on the conditions in, in British Columbia. What are your thoughts on the conditions of care homes in, in BC? Are we? Are there any care homes that are as bad as what's described in this report? To your knowledge? Well, I, I think clearly not. I think, uh, but I think you know, 
you, you talk about the care homes that we did go in and take over. That's a sign of, I'd argue, of the system working. And those were, as everybody knows, retirement care home concepts, care homes in Comox and Nanaimo in Victoria and Summerland. And we took steps, um, and medical health officers took steps to take over those care homes, which we're still running today. Uh, none of which, by the way, have had COVID-19 outbreaks. And uh, and we're trying and working hard to improve care. No one's saying the system's perfect here, but right. we have taken a couple of really important steps before all this happened, which are which I think are significant. The first is um, is to bring in Bill 47 which was unanimously uh, passed in the legislature, but got rid of two bills that you'll remember well, uh, Mike, as a reporter, Bills 29 and 94. And so that improved things for workers in the field at a time when we need more people. Those those were the, just to give the listeners some background on that, those were the bills that were brought in by the previous liberal government, right? That brought in kind of a a privatized model for care homes, correct? Well, well, they took away rights from workers. It's not just an issue. Of, it's not often an, just an issue of public and private. They took away and they allowed essentially contracts to be flipped. So it wasn't just public and private, but they led to essentially the creation of a system in many care homes where you had a third provider coming in and providing the staffing, right? And I think a lot of people who are in private care homes find this frustrating, who run those care homes, because uh, it's really important that you have that deep connection between the people running the care homes and the residents, and that's something to work on. But but here's here's my view of the question uh, over time. I mean, and that was, you know, it led to the layoffs, the largest layoff of women workers in Canadian history, and you'll recall all the politics of that. And that's why I was so proud when we brought it into the legislature and the legislature unanimously supported it. And it reflected, I think, a changing understanding of the importance of long-term care amongst everybody. And that's what I've been trying to do as Minister of Health. That's why we've increased care standards, improved care standards, especially for public beds in private and nonprofit care homes. Is the system perfect? I'd be the first to say it's not. We've got to continue to work on this. A lot of our public care homes, you know, the ones that are health authority owned, they're 20, 30, 40 years old, and they're, they're um, built to a different standard than we have today. So we've got enormous capital work to do. We've got, a new, we've got to uh, recruit a new generation of care workers in our care homes, we, and we've got to improve the quality of care. And the final thing I would say, Mike, is we've got to, it's not just a matter of living longer and safety, which a lot of these reports are sort of consumed with, you know, how we keep people safe. We, we've got to make sure that we, that we allow people to live well, and that includes seniors who want to stay at home for a longer period of time and others. Like, it's not just about living longer, it's about living well. And uh, this is something that the whole sector is working on together. And I'm very proud of the BC approach because uh, we're, we've, in a, in a pandemic, people who have long-standing disagreements about some of these issues have worked together to make things better for seniors. And I'm very proud of them all. Speaking to Health Minister Adrian Dix, so, so even though it doesn't appear that We've seen the, the scale of the abuses that we've seen in Ontario and Quebec and reflected in this shocking report this week. Given that, does there still need to be major restructuring of care homes in British Columbia? Should they be brought totally into the public sector? Should they be merged into the hospital system, for example? Is that what's on the table? Well, I, you know, I've heard suggestions mostly from federal politicians, Mike. And I, I think we, we have to be careful about the conclusions we draw. The largest outbreak in British Columbia, the largest outbreak in BC, was at the Mission uh, Correctional Center, right? 
134 cases, and the last one person passed away. Had that been a care home, that would have been a much larger number, as you can imagine, right? Right. That institution is run by the federal government, 100%, 100% public, and yet they had a large outbreak. We've got to be careful about the conclusions we draw. What I want to do is make this a better place to work in the care sector, support people working in the sector, a better place to be a resident, improve standards, and make the investments we need. And if the federal government wants to get involved with that, I would meet with them virtually right now, but I'd meet with them any day of the week. I'd meet with them at midnight on Sunday if they wanted to talk about those issues. But we've got to we've got to do that work now. And we started it before this uh, COVID-19. We're doing it during COVID-19, and we've made, I think, some very good steps right. during COVID-19, and we've got to continue that afterwards. There okay. is no question we have to do better, and, uh, and I think people are demanding that we do better. We've got an, an independent watchdog for senior citizens in our province, a seniors advocate, Isabel McKenzie, who's been sounding the alarm on this for some time. She brought out a report back in February on long-term care home accountability. And one of the things that she highlighted was the disparity in pay between public facilities and and private facility, private care homes, 30% less paid to the employees in some of these private homes, which has clearly had an impact on their ability to recruit and retain staff, which is one of the big problems here. Is that a priority for you? Does something need to be done about that? Well, we just did something about that. You know, the single site order. The reason it's worked here, and, you know, as of last week, we completed uh, single site plans in 499 out of 545 care homes, was because we added to that. And we said that, uh, you know, where there were differentials in wages, we'd raise those wages up. So uh, I think you remember, I estimated the cost of that was about 10 to $12 million a month. Which, which is going to wages. So that's talking about the differential. Is that, so a, per, that, is that a permanent is measure? Is that a permanent well, measure? Well, it's not a permanent measure yet, but, it's, but right now the single site order is an order of the provincial health officer. And I don't see that single site order changing for a long, long time. Uh, you know, people have talked about the, how things have done, gone well in BC, but in the last couple of weeks, just as an example, at the, at the Langley Lodge, and people have been working their guts out there, so I, this is not a criticism in any way. I'm very respectful of per- people working in the sector. But COVID-19 is a terrible thing. 20 people have passed away. So as as well as we've done here, we've got to continue to do this work. This is uh, the work we have to do. And I think we're going to be dealing with COVID-19 for many, many, many months to come, if not, if not years. There's no vaccine and no cure. And so we've got to continue to take steps to... Uh, as much as we possibly can take care of the most people most vulnerable for uh, to COVID-19, and that's our seniors and others who live in long-term care. Thank you for your time today. Hey, anytime. Take care, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk now about that crucial ruling in the Meng Wanzhou case yesterday. Of course, the Huawei executive and her dream team of lawyers made a bid for her freedom in court yesterday. She's cur- currently under house arrest facing possible extradition to the United States to face criminal charges there. This is a major international and diplomatic standoff here over this uh, high-ranking tech executive and what will happen to her. A lot of people thought she was going to walk yesterday. I did see some legal analysis that she had a good chance to beat the rap here and maybe be set free under uh, technical arguments. What it was not to be, she lost her bid for freedom in court yesterday. Have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Nadia Stewart. All right. 
Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou will not be heading home as quickly as she'd hoped. A judge has dismissed her application, saying the criteria for double criminality can be met in this case. Now, that is a key turning point here. Meng was arrested at Vancouver International Airport at the request of the United States. They accuse her of bank fraud stemming from allegations she violated U.S. sanctions against Iran. Both Meng and Huawei have always denied the allegations. All right, let's check in now with Ian Young, the Vancouver correspondent for the South China Morning Post, who's been covering this story for many months. Ian, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. No problem. I really appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit about some of the details of this case. That double criminality concept, can you explain that for the listeners and how this whole case yesterday hinged on that? Yeah, sure. Double criminality is the concept that requires that someone uh, who is going to be extradited from Canada to another country must be accused of something that would be a crime in Canada if it was committed here. And I think that right. and that was the key issue for, uh, for Mung's lawyers who argue that, that, that that wasn't the case because the case against her hinges on breaches of American sanctions, which aren't law here in Canada. Right. What did you think of that argument? I always thought that when I first heard this concept, I thought it sounds like a bit of a Hail Mary pass here to try and convince a judge of that. I mean, she's the United States accuses her of lying to some banks about the Huawei's relationship with another company in Iran, doing business in Iran to get around um, some of the sanctions there. Obviously, that would be a crime in Canada, too, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, I think what Judge Heather Holmes uh, said was that the essence of the alleged defence is lying. The essence of yeah. what she's accused of is fraud. And the fact that this uh, overlaps um, uh, with American sanctions, which are not law here, um, wasn't really the issue. I mean, it's essential right. to understand the case, but uh, she's not necessarily accused or being prosecuted for, um, for breaching American sanctions. She's being accused of lying about right. breaking American sanctions. Right. That's why it always seemed like a bit of a bank shot to me to argue that she should be set free under, under these arguments. And when I saw her doing kind of photo ops and doing the sort of victory sign and stuff, I thought, this is a little, celebrating a little prematurely there. Okay, so she loses the case yesterday, Ian. What now? Is China going to retaliate against Canada over this, do you think? Well, China's already flagged that it is very upset. I think that um, the response from China, from the embassy, was very telling yesterday. They said um, uh, that, that it was very strongly critical that Canada was going down the wrong path uh, with this decision, um, you know, that this was, and that China itself had already made very serious representations to Canada about this ruling. Now, um, that I think shows the Chinese mindset, which is that the courts here should reflect government positions, that the government here in Canada should somehow be able to demand that the courts here act in a certain way. And I think that most people, most Canadians at least, understand that that's not the case that the courts are independent. So, yeah, I think it's, it's reasonable yeah. to think that China might have something, uh, so, something waiting to, uh, to inflict on Canada. What could they possibly do? Well, we've got a trade relationship for a start. Yeah. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, the worst end of the spectrum, even there, um, there's the prospect of, of, of more of the kind of, I guess, hostage-taking that has, mm. has already been conducted on poor old Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, yes. who are accused of espionage by Beijing, um, but who were very conveniently arrested immediately after Meng Wanzhou was arrested. And, you know, I think that um, they've become, you know, basically pawns in this big game. Um, so, you know, there's any number of things that China could do. Speaking of the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, who were, as you mentioned, detained in China, 
while this was all going on, a lot of people looked at that as just obvious retaliation for, from China. What happens to them now? Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to speculate too much on, on, on what does happen to poor old Michael Spavor and Michael Cove, but I think that's right. I think the perception here in Canada certainly is that um, these fellows have been, um, you know, arrested as retaliation uh, and, and, and hostage-taking. So we don't know. I mean, Chinese justice isn't a terribly transparent process, unlike the process here in Canada. So, you know, we can't expect, um, you know, daily coverage of, of, of what happens legally to Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig. Speaking to Ian Young, South China Morning Post. Ian, the fact that Canada has an independent judicial system, this is something that Trudeau has consistently highlighted that the courts operate independent to the politicians here and he can't direct the, a judge how to decide in this case. Is that a concept that's just foreign to China? I mean, when they, when they accuse Canada of being accomplices with the United States and trying to go after this tech executive, they, they don't seem to believe that the court system is independent in Canada. Is that their basic argument? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think that there's another tra- train of thought that is that um, you know China is being a bit disingenuous with that position, and they know um, that Canada has an independent judiciary, and this is all just posturing. But I, you know, I think that reflecting not just the government, Chinese government's mindset, but um, a lot of Chinese people's mindset, it is a very foreign concept. This idea that the government can't just you know go up to a judge and say, "Do this. This is how you should rule." The idea that Heather Holmes, Justice Heather Holmes is coming to her conclusions independent of all the political pressure she has no doubt been under. You know, I certainly do think that that is a foreign concept to a lot of people and certainly to probably a lot of people uh, in, in the government in China. That said, at the end of the day, when this extradition process is over, the decision on whether or not Meng Wanzhou will be actually extradited and sent to the United States to face charges there, does that not ultimately come down to a political decision, that it will be a decision of the justice minister to to uh, complete that extradition process? Yes, it certainly will. Um, that's right. a process that has to play out, and ultimately it is up to the minister to decide uh, whether or not to act on the recommendation of the court that this right. person is extraditable. Um, so yes, you know, there, there will be a decision. But how far down the track are we talking here? It could be years uh, yes. when you talk about an appeals process. So uh, who knows who the government's going to be even at that stage. Okay, speaking of years, how long do you expect this to drag on now? Meng Wanzhou, of course, still under house arrest in her mansion in Vancouver. The extradition process now goes on and continues. Could that? How long could that drag on for? If we, do, if we just look at the odds, the odds are that, um, that extradition would be approved. And if it is approved, then the odds are that there would be an appeal. And the odds are that that could last years. Ian, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the uh, assault weapon ban in Canada and what the government calls assault weapons. There's a, the lingo, I'll tell you, there's a debate over the definition of, of these terms for sure. That's part of this debate here. Have a listen to this. Here's Justin Trudeau talking about the gun ban. These weapons were designed for one purpose and one purpose only, to kill the largest number of people in the shortest amount of time. There is no use and no place for such weapons in Canada. The vast majority of gun owners use them safely, responsibly, and in accordance with the law, whether it be for work, sport shooting, for collecting, or for hunting. But you don't need an AR-15 to bring down a deer. 
Okay, that was the, uh, the the clip that really resonated with a lot of people on the AR-15. Brand new opinion poll out on this today says a large majority of Canadians support the Trudeau government on this one. Got lots of calls here, but real quickly, Rod Giltaka is Executive Director of Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Rod, it's nice to have you back on again. What do you think about this poll showing most Canadians support the government here? Well, I think most Canadians are um, entirely uninformed on the topic and... Um, polls like the Angus Reid poll a while back, um, I think were really representative of what the truth might be, which is you have a large uh, amount of people that will will default by trusting their government. Um, and then at the same time, they'll admit that they have absolutely no knowledge on the topic whatsoever. So that's that's a real problem. And, uh, and that's just the first of many what, problems. What would you say is the most widely misunderstood element of this? Well, um, there's so many. How do you pick one? Um, probably one of the uh, most important is the fact that um, most Canadians are led to led to believe by the Liberal government that there are insufficient or weak or no gun laws whatsoever right now. Canada has some of the strictest gun laws on the planet as we speak. Um, and problems with violence, whether it's multiple victim public shootings or gang activity or any other type of violence with or without firearms, doesn't really have anything to do with the proliferation of firearms, so common misconception. It has everything to do with violence. So attack the root causes, let's reduce violence in our society, and then everyone wins. Okay, let's take some phone calls here, Rod, and see what people think about it. Don calling in from Surrey. Hi, Don. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Go ahead. Uh, just listening to what uh, the Prime Minister had to say about AR-15s not being any good to drop a deer, he probably doesn't realize that legally you're not allowed to take an AR-15, which is now restricted, into the woods to go hunting. You're only allowed to take it from your house to the rifle range and back, and you need an authorization right. to transport to do so. Yeah, so right. these rifles are being used not for hunting. They're being used for sporting purposes in rifle ranges, legally being used. People need to realize, I mean, they're looking at a $600 million budget to buy, uh, you know, the weapons that they so-called called assault weapons. But I remember a few years back, they had the long gun registry that was supposed to cost $2 million. It was a liberal thing that cost $2 billion. Yes, yes, so that's yes. something for people to think about. What's the cost going to be? Yeah. Meanwhile, gangbangers are getting uh, all these stolen guns that are coming up from the States and running around the street shooting people, and they're just being let out on bail, and those charges okay. are being dropped. All right, Don, thank you for the call. Yeah, what do you think about that, Rod, his point about when Trudeau says you, you, can't, you don't need an AR-15 to hunt a deer? Well, Le- I think legally, Trudeau's... You can't, you can't hunt a deer with an AR-15 in Canada now. That's illegal. Well, that's correct. Uh, you know, Trudeau's purpose is to tell as many lies as possible in the shortest amount of time. And th- that statement, because I've heard it a hundred times, um, was full of lies. Number one, the only reason people don't use the AR-15 for hunting is it's been illegal to do that for 30 years. Yeah. All the other guns that they banned, saying that they're military-style assault weapons, they're all used for hunting. So, um, and, it's, and, and these guns have all been used safely and responsibly for decades and decades in target shooting, sports shooting, recreation shooting as well. So, again... Just lying to Canadians, and unfortunately, most Canadians don't know the difference. Okay, Don on the open line in Surrey. Hi, Don. Hey, how's it going? Good. Go ahead. Um, I just joined in the program. I mean, I had somebody uh, let me know that, that this was going to be on. So as a champion handgunner and an active hunter, uh, it dismays me no end to 
as appears has been said so far, that the liberals have continued to pull the wool over the eyes of people who take at face value what they see in the news, take at face value what they hear on the radio. I'm a 62-year-old woman who speaks two languages and owns two homes, and I didn't start shooting until I was 54 years old. So I hardly fit that profile of what everybody would like to believe is your murderous person with a handgun. And to add a little bit to the you don't need an AR to hunt a deer, no, the restricted platform in the AR has been illegal, but also because the most commonly used caliber in an AR is not considered sufficient for hunting deer deer. in many provinces as well. So this whole thing is is just, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm vetted. I've passed tests. On top of that, I'm an IPSC shooter, which means that I've also taken additional uh, safety courses on top of the regular RPAL exams. So explain to me, like I'm a two-year-old, why I Mm. should be treated like a criminal. Yeah, what do you use your handgun for? As I said, I'm a competitive target shooter. Right. Yeah, this is like an Olympic sport, isn't it? Well, it's a very different sport in the Olympics, but IPSC, which stands for International Practical Shooting Confederation, has also just been granted observer status in the Olympics. And many Canadians, what I'd like to add is many Canadians, and several on the Lower Mainland, have already achieved international class status in this. So... You know, this is this is what I use handguns for. Hunting right. with handguns is illegal in this country, and um, I do what I do best, and that's at a range with an approved vetted firearm. Thank you, Don. Now, I hear you. There's a lot of people who will use these uh, guns, like a handgun, just for competitive target shooting, and that's a international regulated sport. And I think it's kind of gutless in a way for Trudeau to say it's up to the municipalities now to ban handguns. We'll see where that one goes. Rod, uh, the time always flies by. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike.